long day I got a lot to say It feels like I'm carrying a two-ton weight I go see a friend Hello, I'm Monsignor Patrick Winslow. And I am Father Matthew Kauth. And we are speaking from the rooftop. A podcast brought to you by Tan Books, in which we invite you to join our conversation out here in the open air. Where we look out upon the world around us from the rooftop of the church and share with you what we see. Makes me Greetings, good father. Welcome back to the From the Rooftop. Well, hello. It's been a while. It has been too long. I think long. we have to explain that. Yeah, I think we had to explain it last time, too. Yeah, no, but this um, one was inexcusable. It's true. I think that um, perhaps most of you who would know myself or Father Winslow, and certainly anyone that would know the Savoy family, are aware that, of course, we all suffered a, a great loss um, this week in the death of Thomas Savoy, who was the Magister Capelle for um, St. Joseph College Seminary. Prior to that, he was the choir master and director at St. Thomas and a longtime friend, first of Father Winslow's and then, of course, of mine as well. I was thinking back, he actually helped me select my very first mm-hmm. mass music back in 2000. Well, that was 2000 flat. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, ago. first of all, I, I'm sure that Tom would not allow you or me to use his past as an excuse as to why we've been so long delayed in recording this, because that only happened fairly recently. We've been long delayed before then, mm. and that's just a matter of scheduling. We're going to get better at it. Uh, we have better equipment now where it's mobile, and we can uh, bring it to wherever, where, wherever we are. So we're going to be better on that one. But going back to the whole Tom front, um, he's really kind of been you know, a string in the fabric of my priestly life since the very beginning. As you know, I was ordained in upstate New York, and my very first parish assignment was at a Church of Blessed Sacrament on Central Avenue in Albany. And within a matter of months, uh, there was a change in the music director. The previous music director was was leaving, and Tom was hired on board. And that's why I met Tom, his wife, Deborah, and all the five kids. And uh, it was like seeing the Von Trops show up you know, at your parish. <laughs> it, was, it was just delightful, such good people. And <clears throat> at that time, um, I got to know Tom, and he was just a, he's a big personality, uh, strong, clear views with respect to sacred music that he had really come to honestly uh, by, by virtue of his work since he was a boy, uh, serving in the life of the church as a young burgeoning organist, and then eventually, you know, professional musician. Um, and he continued to work in, in and through the life of the church in serving as a, a sacred artist uh, for, for music and parishes. But he took that so much more seriously than just playing an organ or just showing up and providing music from a hymnal. You know, it was a whole other thing for him. It was tapping into the music tradition of the church and taking the rightful part of sacred music, or at least serving the rightful part of sacred music in the liturgy. And uh, I learned a tremendous amount. And that's when uh, you'd come up to visit at some point. Yes. And uh, the two of you very quickly started to, to talk about sacred music. You were, your mind was on putting together stuff for your first Mass. And if I remember at the time, he was 
taking pieces from the old mass, but of course, you know, most of the sacred music was was um, composed to fit the old the older form of the mass. And so he was transposing some stuff. That's probably not the right word, but adapting it so that it could be applied to the the new form of the mass of the the 1970 missile. And so, for example, the memorial acclamation doesn't exist in the old mass, but it does in the in the new form of the mass. And so you would have to contrive musically something to mm-hmm. do the memorial acclamation. Mm-hmm. So he would look to the Gloria or the Kyrie, and he would take the, the melodic lines and then he would apply it to the memorial acclamation, that sort of stuff. Uh, and I think at the time uh, when he was doing all of that, that's when you arrived and you started talking to him and he really opened up, I think, a great deal, a great number of possibilities. And I don't know if you used one of the masses that he adapted. Uh, was that the case? We did not, know, but it, it, what happened is we were at... Um, the anniversary of uh, one of the, or the feast, I should say, of Our Lady of Mount Carmel is where I met him because you were, of course, serving the Carmelite sisters there. Right. And Tom was doing the music for that mass. It was, I remember that was, it was my first anniversary then. Yes. It was a Lottie mass. And I remember attending the mass, or maybe I can celebrate it, I can't recall, but, mm. but I just remember all of a sudden I heard this music and I thought, where in the world is this coming from? Mm-hmm. Um, because that area of the church's patrimony was largely kept from us insofar as it just it simply was buried and I hadn't heard any of it I got a very small inkling of it at, at uh, St. Charles uh, Barmeo Seminary we had a pretty good music program mm-hmm. there and so I, I, I began to hear some of it but when I heard an entire mass done so masterfully so beautifully with both chant and polyphony I I was beside myself and it was one of those experiences we had intellectually with most of the things that we discovered, which was, why did anyone ever tell us about this? Right, exactly. <laughs> Where was this my entire uh, yeah. childhood? Um, and so I remember saying that at some point, you and I came to the conclusion that if we ever had a parish large enough, we would ask Tom to come down because he, he just <laughs> there was just no one like him. I had yeah. a priest recently that said something rather beautiful about him. He didn't know him, but he watched him work with our, our men. Mm-hmm. And he said he had those huge hands. Mm-hmm. They did. They were massive He's a tall hands. man. Tall man and massive hands like a basketball player. It was yeah. Perfect for a pianist. Yeah. And, um, or an organist. And he said, I would watch those hands go out and they'd raise. And almost as if he's the one who did all the flying. That's right. That's with right. With those hands. He would make guys fly. And he, it's true because we didn't have and still don't have really any one particular voice in the seminary that's of uh, lots of education and formation in terms of voice lessons, etc. He takes what he gets and he makes absolute magic out of it. He's like Rumpelstiltskin. He he just he can take ordinary straw and spin it to gold. That's it. That's it. I don't know how the rest of that story goes. So Rumpelstiltskin is like a bad guy. <laughs> <laughs> he's not like that. He's not, He's the good part that can take straw. He's and the make good it into part. Gold. Yeah, no, he he did. He he could take ordinary stuff, and ordinary circumstances, and and deliver gold. Yeah. And you just didn't know how he did it, but somehow he did it. It was it was really very beautiful. Well, I think we need to transition at some point and talk about how that beautiful sacred music uh, evangelizes the soul, mm-hmm. um, because then we begin to really understand the important role. 
that sacred musicians like Tom play in the life of the church versus just somebody who comes along and, you know, and plays a hymn. Right. Uh, but I would say that um, we should maybe explain a little bit as to how we came down here. Sure. Um, I was, uh, you and I had just come back from further studies and you were going to live in residence with me at the place where I was going to be a pastor. And I had gotten word that there was a vacancy uh, for the music that the gentleman was going to move on to another parish. So I knew that I walked in with a pretty large vacancy. I needed to fill it quickly. And I didn't have any uh, you know, real knowledge of the people or anything like that. I just had to kind of walk in cold. Um, so I called Tom and I say, hey, Tom, I'm looking for a musician. Now, in terms of background, over the course of years, uh, Tom and I would touch base. He would call me or text me periodically about vacancies in the southeast because he knew that at some point he wanted out of the snowy northeast. Um, and so he would see a vacancy wherever they post them and uh, wonder about that, if I knew anything about that priest, if I knew anything about that mm, diocese, mm. if I knew anything about that parish. And I would always reply. And then occasionally I would reach out to Tom and I would say, hey, Tom, I need some help with music. Hey, can you come and do a workshop for us? That kind of stuff. So I knew that in the back in the back of my mind that he had always had an eye toward the South at some point. But, you know, you never know if someone's going to pull a trigger like that. They sure. just, you just don't know if it's a dream. It's, it's a, a cultural curiosity. shift. It's a different world being from New York. It really is in many ways. <laughs> in many ways. Um, for example, Tom, in his sense of humor, was straight out of New York. Yeah. Uh, there's nothing we could say. We could, we could not tell you a single joke because all of his jokes would make people blush, which he, <laughs> uh, which he loved doing. He was like the impish altar boy, right? He's, never, he's always going to be there. He's going to show up and serve the Mass. Um, but, you know, in the sacristy, he's going to say an off-color joke. And, and yet quite devout and pious. And quite devout and pious, yeah. He, was, he, he had that youthful quality to him. He, uh, he was both. Yeah. Uh, but so, so I, I knew this about him, so I said, but I didn't want to presume because he was the rector, uh, he was the um, music director and organist for the cathedral. Right. Like that's usually considered a, sort of a pinnacle thing, right? You're the, you know, the, you're the grandmaster in a diocese when you're at the cathedral. So it didn't even occur to me that he would want to come down. So I said, hey, Tom, I need somebody. Can you help me find that? I don't need the first thing, I, you know, the, the first place to look. How do I even pose for this? What do I say? How do I find someone? And he said, well, what are you looking for? And I think he was driving at the time. Uh, he said, um, I said, well, to be quite honest, I'm looking for you, someone like you. How do I find you? Mm -hmm. And he said, can I call you right back? I said, sure. So I later found out that he pulled the car over and then he called his wife, Deborah, and um, they had a quick conversation. So he calls me right back and he said, what about me? I said, what? He wow. said, I would consider doing it. I said, are you kidding? He said, I just got off the, the phone with my wife. My, you know, uh, the, last, one of my, the last children is leaving the house. This is a perfect opportunity, you know, I think I think we would be up for it. I said, Tom, that would be amazing. I, did, I never thought you'd leave the cathedral. I mean, who knew? Right, right, right. And then one thing led to another, and boy, he's a character. So he well, fit right in. And and what he did in this diocese, raising the bar yeah. so high relative to music, it, it's one of those things where the, the tide came in and all the boats got raised. Well, that's you know? it. And 
And I said to him when he came here, I said, Tom, I want you here, but I want you to have an influence. Yeah. I said, you know, you, you've been through many different trends in the life of the church. And uh, you've probably seen it all. Uh, you have a very well thought out, informed understanding of sacred music and its role. So I don't want you to be confined to just this parish. To the degree and the extent that you can have an influence in the, lar- in the larger area and in the diocese, please do. Well, he, that's his nature, right? Right, absolutely. You know, Tom is larger always on life. the next project. He's life. composing. He's, you know, he's he's developing the. He went from the New York Catholic Chorale to the North Car- the Carolina Catholic Chorale. Right. Uh, you know, he's getting out on the radio. He's doing all of his things, and it didn't take long for him to get hooked into your seminary. Yeah. No you know, um, and that was a right move. Deborah had said you know, to me the other day that this was the greatest move they ever made. Oh. It's coming down here. Um, the life of the church for their lives, it just it was absolutely, absolutely hand in glove move. Mm-hmm. So relative, as you say, though, to the nature of music and its importance relative to the sacred liturgy, I mean, it's one thing to consider that, you know, historically the mass, the masses were always sung. Mm-hmm. Right, I mean, so a spoken mass is kind of a relative an aberration, a new yeah. thing. Yeah, um, that the Easterns, of course, still uh, sing the mass, and I think in part because historically, whenever you wanted to do something of a high nature, you know, it was it was it was lyrical, it was poetic, it was it was sung, not verse. And there's a number of instances in in literature where I was thinking. As you were speaking, not that I wasn't actually paying attention to you, but you know, I, that's about right. That's about right. <laughs> it, it struck that's, me. I return the favor. So it, it struck me that both in C.S. Lewis and in, in Tolkien, in their their um, individual myths, one in the Book of Nar- Books of Narnia and the other in the Silmarillion, both occasions in which the the figure of God is creating something, he does so by singing, mm. and so yeah, right. creation comes forth as it were, in song, and which is not um, unlike what we speak about relative to all things are made through the word. We don't think, we think about a word as spoken, not according, in some sense, a word as sung. Right. And even we speak about those beings that are closest to the, to the divine um, as ones who are constantly engaged in songs of praise, that is to say, the angels. Absolutely. I remember uh, Thomas said to me, he said, you know, going back to the pages of Genesis, and it says, and God said, let there be. He said, do we really think that he only spoke those? Mm. No, he sung them. <laughs> you know, and, which actually, as a, as a scientist, the science part of me resonates with that because everything, every, every uh, material object has a, 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 what do we call it, a wave A wave function. sign, yeah. And the wave function becomes more pronounced the smaller you get. So, like, you and I, as an object of a, a wave function, but you know, it doesn't really amount to much. Right? Oh, it's, mine it's, does. Well, clearly, I see you <laughs> waving big around. waves. <laughs> exactly. Uh, but, you know, if we could, could, if we reduced you in size, to, you know, to the size of an electron, um, you would be behaving with, in wave-like ways. Uh, and and so, which, which gives you a sense that, that all the material order, the material world, mm. is, is predicated on uh, waves to a certain degree. It's, it's woven into the fabric of creation. And so to hear that the vibrations and the waves uh, that are created with the not just a spoken voice, but a sung voice, mm-hmm. sort of a, 
something very beautiful, waves that are beautiful to the ear, to be heard, are those the types that were behind the creative act? I mean, it, it just, uh, it, it, it's fitting. Let's mm -hmm. put it that way. It's simply Absolutely. fitting. Uh, you know, I remember when I was a kid and we would go to church and there was maybe some conversation, I don't know, about the music at Mass. It wasn't like a common theme, but every now and then someone might mention something. Mm. And we would always talk about the music at Mass as something that we'd like. Oh, I like this one or I like that right. one. And at the time, it was simply a matter of what I liked. You know, so it could be a melody that I liked. It could be the words that I liked. Ideally, it would be both. Um, it could have been the way it made me feel. You know, it could have been the way in which it uh, inspired me, that sort of thing. And the same thing with my parents. Uh, but my dad has by far the worst, worst taste. Well, in all things, really. Well, in all things. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, no. He he has that kindergarten romper room uh, taste. Yeah, he likes yeah. it. I and think he embraces it wholeheartedly, without doubt. But that's, you know, that's where he is. Hmm. Uh, that's where he is. So um, that said, the rest of us had only mildly more elevated views. Uh, not, not much beyond that. I remember hating the organ. I thought the mm. organ was just loud and obnoxious and just, ugh, grating. <laughs> and I remember telling that to Tom, and he looked at me like I just heard him. I you know, they, he, so. oh, sure. he looked at me like I, I just. But of course, there is a difference between someone who can play the organ and somebody who just hammers the organ. And or that accordion sound of a yeah. of a bad organ was just a sort of a, uh, reverberation, like an ice of, rink. Oh, it's horrible, you know. And it was, <laughs> and that's kind of what we had at at our parish. But the thing is, the standards by which we were measuring were all self-referential. And not that I'm not that I don't continue to be somewhat self-referential, but I've been formed, and having been formed. What suits the liturgy, mm -hmm. in my estimation, in sacred music is an altogether different reality. What I would have said as a 13-year-old yeah. and what I would say now are totally, totally different. Well, there's an old line from Beethoven, right, when, you, when he says, um, asks the question of a confrere, what does music do? And then the confrere says it elevates the soul, which is probably the common response of someone going to Mass saying, I want to elevate the soul, etc. And Beethoven's response was, I think, rather accurate. He just said, it does whatever I darn well please. Because it has that pernicious capacity to sort of get underneath the door of reason and get right to the passions. It can, as he said, if, if I want you to march, you're going to march. If I want you to, to, to be quiet, you'll be quiet. The, the formative capacity of music to such an extent that Plato didn't want the state to be able to control music because it had such an effect on the passions of, of the listener. And I think that's true. And I think in, in large degree, um, what you and I respond to, especially when we're younger, um, to the songs we like or the songs we don't like, um, have high levels of emotional content to them, which is the reason that 
when people, as you and I laugh about so many times, when you, you get ready for a funeral and you ask the family, what would you like in terms of the music? And they say, we want it to be traditional. And they name the songs that to them are traditional, which right. are like How Great Thou Art. And right, right. All these songs that I think have absolutely no objective quality about them whatsoever that is good. Um, but they have an emotional connection to them. They're nostalgic. Because that was the song they played when grandma died. Right. right, and so your your emotions grab onto them, which is not the same thing as it being objectively beautiful. No, but that's what happens in movies. Absolutely, right. You use music and. Do you ever do you ever have a movie on and they maybe turn down the volume? You know, it's uh, it sure. goes flat. Yeah, it goes flat. The whole thing goes flat. Yeah. Um, oh, I have a, I have a constant uh, uh, theme and 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 score in the back of my mind just for my for my own life. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's exactly. very dramatic. My music. <laughs> Full of French horns. And <laughs> I wouldn't even ask what was playing when you came into the building. Um, yeah, no, it, it, it's true. Uh, it does grab a hold of you. Uh, we are subject to its powers. And precisely, I think the point that you're making is that when it's used in a liturgical setting, it needs to be discerned. Mm-hmm. In what way is it moving you? And at right, what moment? Right, right. Um, and that is an, a very impactful. I would say that... Um, even as a kid, everybody react. I would have reacted to very positively to the sound of Gregorian chant. I have never encountered a person that didn't find Gregorian chant to be moving. If it's done right, because it can be deathly. Well, no, no, no. I don't mean uh, yes. I mean if it's done properly. So uh, remember when I was in college, mm. I took a music course, um, and. We had to study Gregorian chant back then. You'd have to go to the library, and the, the chant was all on big records. And you had to, <laughs> I mean, it wasn't even. A Didn't make it form. to the eight tracks. No, no, not at all. So they were on the big record. We had to listen, and we had to take certain notes. And so we had samples, and I, you could go and you could bring your own cassette, and you could record mm. it, and then take it with you. Uh, and so I remember I, I had that, and I put it in the car. I put it on the car with my parents, and they're like, "Whoa, this is beautiful!" This, is beautiful. everyone had the same reaction. Of course. It was being done properly, like the mm-hmm. monks of Silos. Right. Or, it was the monks of Silos. It went crazy that that exactly. monastery. The chant album, uh, where everybody responded it because it is so moving. Yeah, um, and, and moving in, the, in such a right way, it does the work. Yeah, the arsis and thesis, as Tom would say, you know that that sort of wave-like quality, as you were saying earlier. Um, and the mora voce, where you you kind of you swell up and then you sort of, your voice sort of dies down. It has to maintain a certain amount of life. If it's just sort of flat, mm-hmm. like anything else, sangos, yeah, right? Yeah, Everyone's yeah. Dis- it destroys the thing. Yeah, no, it, it's actually really hard to do right. It is, but when it is done right, it's it's done in the in the in the situation of a community that has been praying it for a long time and checking themselves on their on their on their singing, and. I think that if, if 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 I could recall one thing that Tom really taught me about uh, the transition from secular, popular, emotionally based music to that, it was a time I had him come into the high school, mm-hmm. and I asked because I was so fascinated by by chant, by polyphony, what have you, and and proper music, and it was it, it had so formed me at that point in my life that, of course, at the high school they had guitars and bongos and various things. And, mm-hmm. and it's a gym mass, right? You can't right. really do anything proper in a gym musically. But nevertheless, I asked them to come in. And I, I realized that what they were doing was good music, but the students at that point couldn't receive it. 
there is a certain amount of education that takes yeah. place with being able to appreciate this, that, or the other, like in anything in life. Um, because beauty is something that you, an appreciation of beauty actually has to be cultivated intellectually. In fact, we, we speak about beauty only in reference to the two senses that are most closely united or connected to the intellect, that is to say sight and sound. We don't say that um, you know, the pizza that you're eating is beautiful. It mm-hmm. might, it might look really great, but right, that'd, right. Be, that'd be sight, not taste. Right. Like we don't say that smells are beautiful. Right. Um, the ones that are most cl- clearly united to the intellect, we talk about beauty, this arresting quality of things. Um, and I was doing some reading recently on that topic, and it struck me, I didn't realize this before, but, but the very word for beauty, one of the words for beauty, in Greek that is mostly aligned with the word for good as well, kind of interchangeable, comes from the, the Greek verb kaleo, which means to call. That's something that the word for beauty is, has that nature of a call, and it's what it does. It, it, it sort of hails you out of yourself. Yeah, that's the, the line from, there's a line from Shakespeare that said, how is it possible that sheep's guts could hail souls out of men's bodies? Meaning the strings of the yeah, violin. violin. How is that possible? And you, and I, I love to play the violin. I'm not sure my playing has ever <laughs> done anything but made everyone leave the room. But I, when you listen to a fantastic violin, it does. It just it rips you out of yourself. Right. Yeah. You, you know, it, there are a lot. There are many things that are beautiful. For example, I love um, a good singer songwriter song with an acoustic guitar. Sure. And, and I would even say that's, that's beautiful. Um, the, yet at the same time, <clears throat> just because something is beautiful doesn't mean it does the, the, mm. serves the mission of sacred music at right. a mass. Right, right. <clears throat> you know, you can have something that's quite beautiful, but it just doesn't, it's, not, it's just not meant for the mass. The mass <laughs> has... Uh, a, a role for the music. I'm sorry, I'm laughing, but my father is, was a deacon. He is he he passed in 2005, and when he used to do the uh, adoration at the parish, he was in charge of the adoration. Well, he liked certain songs, and so he made this cassette tape of all the songs he liked. And so mm. everyone that went to adoration had to listen to my dad's top ten oh, list. Boy, and no. some of the songs were just movie scores. No. <laughs> No, no. See, yes. Yeah, so, so I so, learned to pray for the Blessed Sacrament. With like you know, a great heart in the background. <laughs> yeah, no. I, I mean, I get it. You know, um, things. some things are beautiful, but they're not, they're not right. It doesn't And I serve, remember yeah. um, it was Benedict XVI, and he wrote in the Spirit of Liturgy on the topic of music. He, he, he spoke about um, a quality, certain qualities of sacred music. Mm. And he came up with this uh, paradoxical phrase that I thought was beautiful. He called it sober inebriation. Oh, yes, I love that phrase. I've used it many times since you pointed it out to me. Isn't it stunning? I mean, Mm -hmm. wow, what a thought. Sober inebriation. You know, there's that sense of um, rationality and emotion. Yeah. But you can't become so emotional, so inebriated, that you lose all rationality, which... Sometimes you get with the bongos and right. That's its the purpose, electric guitar. Right? That's why you have it at. You don't have an organ typically at a football game. No, you don't. <laughs> right? Exactly, because you're kind of jumping right to the big emotional. But at the same time, there are times when you tone down the affect and emotion, and it's very sober. Uh, Lent, Good Friday. Mm. Uh, that's why you subdue the organ. Um, you kill the bells. Right. Things of that nature. And 
you, that, but yet you are, you're never so sober that it lacks some inebriation to move right. the spirit. And you're never so inebriated that you lack this rationality, this, this tethering to sobriety, mm. uh, because the two have to be interconnected. And yet we have seen, both of us have actually probably been in occasion where it's tipped too far to one or the other, where it's become so sober, it's so droney that it's like a dirgy, sad. Mm. It just doesn't, and it's mm-hmm. not one of those times when you would want to tip in that direction. And then the same thing with the inebriation, probably felt more often, where like, you know, you're there, you said the words of consecration, then, you know, you you say, Mysterium Fidei, or you chant, you know, uh, the mystery of faith, and then suddenly someone comes in with some massive clanging sounds, know. you know. The, the, the contrast is, 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 is horrible. Oh my gosh. It shocks you like, out of your contemplative stance. It's just so dissonant. Yeah. Uh, to what you're doing at the altar. It's just shocking. And that is a type of uh, inebriation that does not belong at that moment. Um, I don't get inebriated. I just, I just get sick. Well, <laughs> it's so, it's so, uh, just so dissonant to yeah. the moment. Yeah. It's so sacred music, uh, when used properly, uh, this, this beauty, it, it, it is so powerful. And I think that you and I saw cases, especially here, at St. Thomas in, in Charlotte, North Carolina, where his music had a powerful evangelical effect. It moved people. It wasn't just that it it gave them a moment, if you will, but it actually had an effect on their lives. Yeah, They touched something sacred. They felt something sacred, and they wanted more of it. When you tasted it, you wanted more. And of course, a true desire, uh, an authentic desire for the sacred moves one to become better, right? You want to draw closer to God. You right, want right. more of that. If I'm imbued with that which is noble, I want myself to be noble. Mm-hmm. And, that, and I can't get closer apart from changing myself. Exactly. Um, I, or I just drag the music down so I don't or, worry about it. <laughs> right. right? I mean, that's just it, it which yeah. is exactly what we've done in large degree with the liturgy. Um, not uh, necessarily intentionally, but that's yeah. what, exactly what we've done. Well, but I, but for the sacred artists that are out there, especially now experiencing the loss of Tom in the fabric of our community, uh, whether it's the seminary or whether it's the parish or the diocese, um, you realize how much of a contribution that people like this make mm-hmm. to our spiritual lives. And... Uh, you know, you you appreciate it when it's gone more. Yeah. Not that we didn't appreciate it at the time, because every time we went, it would be that was beautiful, that was extraordinary, that was so moving. But now that you're not going to show up on a Sunday or show up to a sacred vespers or something along those lines and hear, right, uh, right. It, it's hard. The upside is because he was a teacher, and he has had this influence on seminarians and priests. What he has set in motion now has a life of its own. Yeah, it's been unleashed. It lives inside of these. I men. mean, you see that? Absolutely, you do. As a matter of fact, they're all coming back today, you know, to be a part of uh, the funeral rites, etc. And that's one thing they've said to me, to a man, that what he gave us, we will not drop. Um, yeah. So. Oh boy. Well. The reality is you and I could eulogize this man and then spin off on all sorts of beautiful themes, mm. themes that he would love right now to be discussing. Absolutely. He was passionate about uh, 
but we're, we're grateful to him. We love him dearly in his family. Um, and we have every confidence that as he draws to the light of God, that he will continue to have an influence on the church in all the best ways. And we ask him to watch over so many of our men that he had influence in, in shaping their musical um, formation. Well said. Amen to that. We'll catch you all next time. All right. Bye. Ciao. It makes me wanna Thanks for listening to this episode of From the Rooftop. For updates about new episodes, special guests, and exclusive deals for From the Rooftop listeners, sign up at rooftoppodcast.com. And remember, for more great ways to deepen your faith, check out all the spiritual resources available at tanbooks.com. And we'll see you again next time. From the Rooftop. Rooftop.